Thank you very much for that welcome. It's good to be with you. Um, can't believe that the three weeks have gone so quickly, but it's been a joy to be here and to study uh, these chapters in the Old Testament, not just as history, but as passages of God's Word that have important messages for us today. And even that uh, final question that Brooke read out is a great one just to uh, think of for ourselves, even this evening as he read out the words of the king of Assyria on what are you basing your confidence. A good one for us to think of this evening. But uh, I'm jumping ahead of myself. First of all, I want to uh, remind you that last week we looked at the King Uzziah, and King Uzziah reigned in the 8th century. That's starting at 800 down to 700. You go down the way BC. And uh, during the uh, time of Uzziah, when he had trusted the Lord and had done great things to revive the spiritual appetite of the people and also leading to economic and cultural revival, it was a time of peace. Um, if you ever wanted to step back into the Old Testament, say you had a time machine that would take you back into the Old Testament uh, and you wanted to find a period of peace and prosperity, you'd probably find it at the beginning of the 8th century uh, in the middle part of the reign of Uzziah. However, blessing and prosperity, uh, rather than bringing people closer to God, began to give them a sense of self-confidence. Uh, that was even reflected in the king himself. And that self-confidence meant that people started to think, aren't we doing well? <laughs> Haven't we done a great job? Aren't we something? And so in the middle of the century, people turned from God. And he sent prophets to rebuke them and to warn them about the importance of not forgetting the one who had brought them blessing in the past. And the 8th century prophets are Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah. And Jonah was in there somewhere as well. So if you wanted to go to a great time in the Old Testament, a time of peace and prosperity, the beginning of the 8th century, if you wanted really to see human nature at its worst, the end of the 8th century wouldn't be a bad choice for that because at the end of the 8th century, around about 721 or so, the northern kingdom, um, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. That's uh, Samaria, the capital, was besieged and conquered. Uh, the kingdom of Judah survived just. And the king of Judah, from the very end, probably I think it was about 715 to across the century to about 685, the king's name was Hezekiah. Now he had no northern neighbor. Judah was all that was left of the great kingdom of Solomon and David. Hezekiah is a 
a, a very uh, well-known person to archaeologists. Uh, he, it's a, if uh, you're interested in things that have been found, we, we have the message of the Bible, and uh, all that you read in the Bible about Hezekiah, much of it is corroborated in archaeology, probably more so than most other kings. Um, and in those days, kings, of course, had a stamp to stamp their letters, and we've never found the stamp of Hezekiah, but there have been many of the little clay seals that were used have been found. The image on the right here is the original, and the image on the left gives you some idea of the content of it. And that little seal bears the name of Hezekiah. So lots of interest for archaeologists. More about that later. In the passage that Brooke read for us, he began by reading, after these things, and the acts of faithfulness, or the things that Hezekiah had so faithfully done. So we start to look at exactly what it meant. What acts of faithfulness did he actually do? And the first thing I notice as we read through this is that this was a man who acted with real commitment and enthusiasm. Uh, if you look at Second Chronicles 29 there in verse 3, it says that in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. There's something urgent about it. There's a sense of urgency about Hezekiah. Uh, I was watching the football on Friday night, and the English commentator was getting very annoyed, and he said, what's this team doing? Where is their sense of urgency? And the Scottish man said, they've got plenty of urgency as far as I'm concerned. But uh, there was uh, uh, something about Hezekiah that said he had a sense of urgency. And uh, also, the second verse that you can see behind me there, Hezekiah the king rose early. I think that's again emphasizing that this man was not hanging about. He wanted to seek the Lord himself and to lead the nation in that direction. There was nothing half-hearted about him. In fact, here's another verse that gives you some idea of enthusiasm. Every work that he undertook in the service of the Lord, he did it with all his heart. That's again a sense of urgency, a sense of, of really putting his heart and soul into it. My, it's good when you see people working like that. My father was enthusiastic about everything he did, but if you weren't enthusiastic, he was very quick to call you up. And he had a word that I've looked up in the dictionary, but I never found it. You know, if you were out walking with him, and you seemed to be a bit lackadaisical, he used to say, James, you're looking fabulous. Have you heard that word, fabulous? It was his word for not putting your heart and soul into things. Don't look it up in the dictionary. It's not there. It was a wee word he seems to have made up. Uh, you're looking fabulous. Lift those feet and show a bit of interest. Well, Hezekiah certainly didn't look fabulous. Uh, there's no room to be fabulous in the things of God. God has done so much for us in everything that God has done for us. He has given us his best. Isn't there a verse that says that he gives press down and running over? 
he gives abundantly. With him there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. He's the God who gives his best to us. And didn't he give us his son, the Savior? God doesn't do things by half. He gave his all for you and for me. So there's no room to be fabulous in the work of the Lord. And Hezekiah certainly wasn't. He showed enthusiasm. That uh, word enthusiasm, I didn't realize this. And this is just by the way. But that word enthusiasm in English comes from two Greek words. En means within and theos, God. So enthusiasm is literally God within. Isn't that a really powerful reason to show commitment and sustainability that God does indeed live within us. That's enthusiasm. That's by the way. Uh, the Hebrew words are more important. I'll come to them later. But uh, Hezekiah faithfully opened the house of the Lord and brought uh, the people along with him. When you, uh, and uh, he not only opened the house of the Lord, but he led them in what was a very memorable Passover. Passover was a way of remembering the great things that God had done. But you know, one of the things about keeping the Passover is that even to this day, when people are keeping the Passover, they don't remember the great things that God did for them in the past they remember the great things that God did for us, that you're part of the people that have been liberated from slavery. And isn't that really a very powerful message? He helped them to remember where they had come from. He helped them to remember that they had been in a situation where they could not save themselves. They could not deliver themselves, but God had set them free. Well, you can always apply that to Christians very easily because we could never save ourselves. We were deep in sin, and Jesus died on the cross of Calvary to set us free. And whom the sun sets free, the Bible says, is free indeed. So it's a great message of freedom in the Passover. But as we think of the Lord Jesus and how he set us free, it's a message that still resounds today. And it's not that he... Uh, I hope that for people here tonight listening to this voice, that you're not thinking of God having set other people free, but that you have known this freedom yourself by bowing at the foot of the cross, asking Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and accepting his freedom from sin. He conquered to set us free. So, as well as uh, being enthusiastic himself, somehow, if you are enthusiastic, you encourage other people to be enthusiastic. And so when the people saw the enthusiasm of the king, it encouraged them all to be enthusiastic. If the leaders half asleep, it'll not encourage anybody. But the leaders showed enthusiasm, and so they, the, the people acted enthusiastically too. Here it is. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. 
And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. Isn't that great? I know we can't do that now. We've got all these masks and things on, but you can still sing with your heart, even if you can't sing with your voice. Somebody was saying to me that actually these days it's helpful to be quieter because you can feel the words with your heart. And how good that is. And the Lord knows our restrictions. But John uh, Wesley wouldn't have been impressed because when he visited some congregations, he gave off to them. And he said, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. I think my father would have said, don't sing fabulously, if you know what I mean. So uh, it was uh, difficult to sing with all your voice, but uh, isn't it interesting that uh, enthusiasm was infectious? When other people see that we love the Lord with all our hearts and all our soul and all our mind, when they see us in fire for the Lord, it will encourage them to be enthusiastic too. Enthusiasm is infectious. So we know that after all the praise and the worship, there was work to be done. And uh, uh, the people of uh, Israel um, gathered together and they looked to the Lord for his wisdom and blessing for the future. Notice that they uh, prayed and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. Saying prayers is different than praying. I remember that, uh, this just by the way, I remember that story in the Acts of the apostle where the Saul of Tarsus was on his way to Damascus and then the light from heaven came and, and he, he fell to the earth and then he went into the city of Damascus and three days later the Lord spoke to a man Ananias and said go and speak to a man Saul because he's praying. Now did it strike you that there's something odd about that? The Pharisees were always praying. Well, at least they were always saying prayers. And suddenly God says, this man's praying. Pharisees prayed all the time. But this time, his prayer was going to heaven. That prayer is not just a waste of words. When we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't just mean we add his name to the end of our prayers, but we pray in a way that is appropriate, in a way that is in his will. We're praying the way Jesus would want us to pray. Then he presents those prayers before his Father, and the Spirit intercedes with groaning that cannot be uttered. Isn't that great? We have a way of making an audience with the King of Kings, let us remember how great it is to pray that we have a God who hears and answers our prayers. Well, then there was work to be done, and a great intolerance towards the idols was shown, the, the things that had turned people away from God. When all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke down the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin 
and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Some of the things that they destroyed were quite legitimate in their own right. For example, we know from the book of Kings that one of the things they destroyed was the bronze serpent that Moses had. I'm rather sorry they destroyed that. It might have been in the British Museum. Who knows? But it had to go because it was taking the place of God. People were starting to worship this bronze thing instead of worshiping the God of heaven. And nothing must be allowed to stand between God and his people. So all legitimate as it might have been in the days of Moses, it had become a nuisance. It had become an idol and it had to go all the things that were worshipped instead of God. And then, uh, uh, one of the most famous early archaeologists, the Israeli archaeologist, was a man called Professor Aharoni from Tel Aviv University, and he was excavating in Beersheba. And he found a big pile of broken stones, and uh, like a jigsaw, he put them together. And this is what he found. An altar with four horns, but it wasn't the sort of altar that the Bible prescribed, and thus it had been broken, and he dated the breaking of it to the days of Hezekiah. Um, Early in 2020, I was uh, in a city called Arad, and it's a border town about 30 miles from Beersheba, right out in the edge of the wilderness. And there's uh, ancient fortifications there. And in the middle of it was a small temple with a holy of holies. And the temple had been closed down, decommissioned, covered in dust with the holy items all in the middle of the floor, all in a pile and dust and ashes poured on top of them. And the date that had happened, the days of Hezekiah. Uh, archaeologists have reconstructed the Holy of Holies, and uh, this is, of course, just in the middle of the archaeological site. Uh, you can see at the very back a big standing stone uh, that probably was used to represent God, not the way the Bible said he should be represented. So the big stone was taken down and buried in ashes. On the uh, left-hand side, there's a large altar of incense. And there was the remains of frankincense on it. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But you see the little incense altar? (laughs) It had the remains of cannabis on it. Strange fire. You know the Bible talks about strange fire? I I wonder, this was the idea of burning these intoxicating drugs to affect the worshippers. Strange fire. That had no place on the altar of God. So the whole lot had to be demolished and broken down. And when did it happen? In the days of Hezekiah, the king, as far as we know. So um, strange fire indeed when God's people were doing the sort of things that you might not be surprised if you found uh, uh, drugs on an altar belonging to Baal. But this was a temple for the Lord. So things had to be done God's way. So Hezekiah and his people were faithful, they were enthusiastic, and they did a great job in ridding the country of all these idols and all the rest of it. And just when everything looked wonderful, then the bad news came. 
And it is true that when we live in a sinful world, that bad news comes to good people. And bad news came to Hezekiah with the Assyrian challenge. It was disastrous news. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities and took them. Sennacherib was just about the turn of the century, around uh, 704 to 681, and his attack on Jerusalem was about just 701 B.C. These uh, people had no reason at all to attack Judah, but their idea was to defeat and humiliate. Some of their weapons you can still see in the British Museum if you have time to, or a chance even to get to London any time. Do visit the British Museum. It's, it's got a, a tremendous amount of material from the Assyrian times, and including these weapons. But uh, Hezekiah faced the challenge from the Assyrians. On whom are you depending? That's the question we opened with. On whom are you depending? A very good question. On what are you basing your confidence? A very good question. A good question to challenge people today. Because in our world today, there's not an awful lot of confidence around. Who are we putting our faith in? On what are you basing your confidence? The king of Assyria asked a good question. And his point is, your future is bleak. He did his best to undermine their confidence. Is there something undermining your confidence tonight? Is there something undermining my confidence? The pandemic has undermined the confidence of a lot of people. But other things can undermine your confidence, like uh, facing difficult exams or failing them, serious medical problems, uncertainty about tomorrow, or family problems. All sorts of things. Uh, we're not likely to face a huge army at our door that will sap our confidence. But life, life in a world that has forgotten God can sap your confidence. You can face things that you just are not expecting, you don't understand, and you can lose confidence. And it was so easy for Hezekiah and his people just to give up. It was so easy to fall into despair. And sometimes that's what happens to people. When they face situations they can't control, they fall into despair and fear. But that's not what happened to Hezekiah and his people. He responded to the bad news in, in, in three ways. First of all, he responded to it practically. If you have been to Israel, you might have had a chance to go through Hezekiah's tunnel. 
It was one of the practical preparations that they produced a tunnel to deprive the enemy of water and to provide water right into the inner city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a sort of experience walking through 1,700 feet of dark tunnel with water up to your waist. It's the sort of thing you might do once in your life, but I wouldn't recommend it too often. Somebody got claustrophobia in front of me once, and I nearly got trampled to death as they tried to get their way out. So it's, uh, but it's, it's great to see how the Bible and archaeology are corresponding here to show us the, some of the things that had to happen because of the challenge practically. And also in one of the verses that uh, we didn't read tonight, I think it says 32 verse 5. We did read that one. It says that Hezekiah built another wall. When they were renovating the old city after the establishment of the kingdom of Israel in 1948, uh, they uh, renovated the whole area around the western wall. And guess what? They found a wall that nobody knew was there. And it was built by... Your man, Hezekiah. It's called Hezekiah's Broad Wall. And part of it is left there to show some of the efforts that he made to protect Jerusalem. So he did very many practical things. And, you know, uh, they sometimes talk about people who are uh, no practical use. You, you can't just forget that part of the job of the Lord is practical, that we must do our part. There's an old legend, I think it goes back to the 10th century AD this time, of a Spanish laborer called Isidore. And Isidore was, a, uh, was supposed to be plowing for his master, but his master got a report that Isidore was always turning up late and leaving early. So he investigated and went along, and he found that Isidore was praying. And then he went to see what was happening in the field, and two angels were plowing the field. Well, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> but, you know, that, that I think is, uh, is, is, is legend. That is not the way things work. God does his bit, but if we don't do our bit, I've never experienced angels doing it for me. And so the first thing he had to do was do what he could, uh, do his bit and be practical. Uh, the, secondly, of course, and perhaps even more importantly, he had to be prayerful, prayerful to God for his help. We've already talked about how important prayer is. And he had company in prayer. It's good for people to pray together. And King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. So they did the things that they could do. And then the things that they couldn't do, they asked God to do. Because God specializes in the impossible. And once again, the importance of prayer is emphasized. Um, and so the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. The Lord answered prayer. So Hezekiah was practical, prayerful, and because he heard that word, he was now confident. 
Confidence is a strange thing. You hear it again in sports connections. You know, that um, there's a book I saw recently on, uh, uh, that says golf is a game of confidence. And uh, unless your football team is confident, they'll not really make much of an effort. Confidence seems to be a, a, a marvelous thing that, that when we lack confidence, we don't do things well. I, I can't explain it, but it's just a fact that when you do things confidently, you do them better. And so Hezekiah and his people not only prayed, but they believed. Because you could spend your life praying and then going away a bit worrying about it. Couldn't you? You could spend your life praying and worrying and praying and worrying, but what Hezekiah and his people did, they expressed confidence. God has said he's going to fight this battle for us. Therefore, we'll trust him. And uh, this confidence helped, and it also was infectious. I said earlier, enthusiasm was infectious, so is confidence. Because Hezekiah encouraged them by saying, be strong and courageous. Let me stop just at that word, be strong. We saw earlier this week that Uzziah's name meant, my strength is the Lord. Well, Hezekiah more or less means the same thing. Because there was different words for strength, just as there are in English. You've got strength, might, power. So you have different words in Hebrew. And Hezekiah's name means, the Lord is my strength. Chazak is the Hebrew. It means, uh, it's quite often used for holding on tight. You know, having confidence, sustainability, uh, and all the rest of it. So be strong. You can almost say that word, be strong, is the word that the name Hezekiah is based on. I know that this is a wee bit superficial, but you could almost say Hezekiah encouraged the people by saying, be Hezekiahs, be strong and courageous, and don't be afraid because there's a greater power with us than with him. Remember the story of the prophet who was not panicking when the whole city was surrounded by enemies, but his servant was going berserk with panic, and, as, and the prophet Elisha, wasn't it, said, Lord, open the young man's eyes. And he could see that the whole army around the city was nothing compared to the army of God, which was right around the hills. Lift up your eyes. There's a greater power with us, something that we can put our confidence in. The God that made the world is on your side. The God that made the world loves you and me. And the battle that we face, the things that we're concerned about, are in his control, not ours. And therefore, if we put our confidence in him, what a great difference that will make to our lives and our approach. Also, Hezekiah says, with him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Isn't that great? This is good news for the Christian. We are never on 
our own. We have the Lord with us, facing every situation that we face. He'll never leave us. The battle's not yours, it's God's. We don't need to panic about the things that get us concerned because the Lord is on our side. And then notice this. I said confidence was infectious. The people gained confidence from what Hezekiah said. Now, that gained confidence is interesting in Hebrew because it's a word, samach, Samach. I'll not ask you to say it with masks on, but uh, Samach is a, is a word that really means to lean your weight on something. There's a great story in the book of Amos where a poor man, Amos is making the point, you can't escape God's judgment. And a poor man is out and he meets a big lion. And as he tries to get away from the lion, suddenly he finds himself bumping into a bear. And the two of them go after him like something you'd see in Walt Disney, you know, that's all the, the dust flying in the air. And the poor man runs for his life and the lion and the bear are breathing down his neck. And then he sees a house in front of him. He dashes in, he slams the door and he leans against the wall. And then Amos says, and a wee serpent on the wall bit him and he died. <laughs> in other words, you can't escape the judgment of God if you're a sinner judgment will come to you, maybe not sooner, but certainly later. But anyway, the point of that story is that he leaned against the wall. And that's the word that's used here for gained confidence. He taught them to lean. He taught them to lean. And in days of increasing panic and worry, We need to learn to lean more on the strong arms of God. And the Lord didn't uh, let them down because he sent an angel. And the angel destroyed the army of Sennacherib. And he went home. And the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. That is the sort of language a shepherd would use in taking care of their sheep. He took care of them on every side. You don't mind another Hebrew word, do you? Hopefully not. I'm going to give it to you anyway. But uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for he took care of them is nachal. And in Psalm 23, verse 2, that word occurs where it says, uh, the, the Lord is my shepherd. He, he leads me. He leads me beside the still water. He leads me. He takes care of me. That's the word. Like a shepherd. Or in Isaiah 40, where it says, he, takes, he leads the sheep and takes care of those that are with young. That word, the Lord is our shepherd. He takes care of us whatever side the trouble is coming from. So, a good memory verse for us, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And look to at Ephesians 6, where Paul says, Be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of His might, put on the whole armor of God. 
And remember, as Moses told the Israelites, never forget that the eternal God is your refuge. And how can we lean on him? Because underneath are the everlasting arms. Two good memory verses there for us to take away. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. I can't be confident in my own strength, but God wants me to lean on him. The eternal God is your refuge. You can lean on him because those everlasting arms will never let you fall, will never let you down. So, for those who know the Lord, when we're facing problems, we can follow the example of Hezekiah and be practical and be prayerful. And above all, we can be confident. We can face tomorrow with confidence. Not confidence in our own selves, but confidence in those everlasting arms. If you know the Lord tonight, I hope you'll leave here with a new spring in your step, a new enthusiasm for Him because of what He has done for us, a new uh, commitment to prayer, and above all, a new confident step, knowing that He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. But you know, if I'm speaking tonight and I know that um, uh, there are people uh, listening to this voice uh, on Zoom as well as here, and if, if you don't know the Lord tonight, this is what you're missing. I encourage you that if you don't have those that confidence to lean on the everlasting arms, that tonight you'll come to the Lord Jesus, confess your sins, turn to him, put your faith in the one who died for you in the cross of Calvary. Pray that through his sacrifice that he will come into your heart, cleanse you from sin, and then you, like us, will be able to be practical, prayerful, and confident, knowing that he will never leave us nor forsake us. A wee word of prayer. Heavenly Father, in these hard and difficult times, we thank you that we can lean on the everlasting arms. In these hard and difficult times, we thank you that we don't have to fight the battle in our own strength, that the mighty God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is on our side. And the battle has already been won at Calvary because we thank you that Jesus who died has risen again. He's at your right hand and someday he'll come or call for each one of us to be with him throughout the great eternity. So help us to be enthusiastic, prayerful and confident until that day. In the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen.